Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Kayla. And you're listening to True Crime Exposed. Where me and my mom will bring you a new case discussion every week. We also advocate for victims through interviews with family, experts, survivors, and more. Welcome back. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a little bit obsessed with you if you listen to our show every week or if you listen at all. But, you know, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Anyway, I wanted to start out this episode with a couple of updates for you guys from previous cases that we've talked about. First of all, we highlighted Dylan Round's missing persons case in our episode last week, episode 50. That was about Randall Leach's disappearance from here in Idaho Falls. And Dylan Rounds, his dad is from here near Idaho Falls in Yukon and his mom from Twin Falls, all in Idaho. And he went missing out of Luce in Utah. So last week I highlighted his case, but it's so fresh that some of the media doesn't always get things exactly right. And then there's new updates and yada, yada, yada. So I did want to let you guys know. I said that his farm truck was found by his boots, which were five miles away from the farm, but that's not true. His boots were found in that location about five miles away from the farm, but his farm truck was actually found back at the farm and it was pressure washed all the way clean. The tires were cleaned of mud, the truck was cleaned of mud, and even the mud around the truck was pressure washed so that there would be no footprints there. Dylan's mom had gotten into the car, into the truck, when she was there finding this truck And she noticed two things. The seat was way too far forward for Dylan. He would not have been driving like that. And secondly, the truck was in four-wheel drive and Dylan knew his truck's four-wheel drive was broken. So he also wouldn't have put his truck into four-wheel drive. This is just an update that I wanted to let you know that came out pretty soon after we released that episode. And I'll kind of keep you updated on this case as we go because Dylan is still missing. His family is conducting searches and things like that. So we should really try to join in on those searches. I'm going to try to see if I can make it down for one. And please keep your eyes and ears open, especially if you're from the Lucen, Utah or Montello, Nevada area. And then the second update I wanted to give you was that in the case of Christopher Tapp. So he was the man wrongfully convicted in Angie Dodge's murder, which is the first case we covered on this podcast. Chris was my very first interview with someone involved in a case. He really gave me my jumpstart into what I wanted to do with this podcast, which was, of course, interview people and really bring awareness to cases from firsthand experience. And if you listen to that case, you know that Chris was wrongfully convicted for 20 years by the city of Idaho Falls, here where I live, for this murder. He was let out of prison after 20 years when they dropped a rape charge, but not the murder charge. So he still had to go on for years as a convicted murderer, which was super hard to find a job, super hard to live. And then ultimately, he is exonerated by genetic genealogy when they finally more than 20 years down the road, they discover who Angie Dodge's 
actual killer was, which was Brian Lee Drips. And we had talked about, me and Chris had talked about how Idaho Falls wasn't, you know, giving him any restitution or payment for his 20 years of his life lost, which were from age 20 to age 40. So, so much of his life taken, his, you know, he wasn't able to have biological kids of his own, although he was able to marry an awesome woman after and have these awesome stepkids that he loved so much. But, you know, just like a lot was taken from him his whole life for this wrongful, wrongful conviction that he was literally just like psychologically talked into giving and screwed over on this false premise of a, you know, a deal. And it was just really messed up. And I had asked you in that first episode to please keep letting the Idaho governor know that, you know, to push for payment for Chris and pass, you know, these bills and whatnot that would pay the wrongfully convicted. Well, just in the last couple weeks, Idaho Falls, the city of Idaho Falls, settled with Chris for $11.7 million. And my heart was bursting when I found that out. I am so excited for Chris. He deserves every single penny. That that is such an amazing thing for him because he lost his life. And while, while that is a celebration, I still want you guys to keep in mind Angie Dodge. It was her case that, you know, the, Chris's life was taken from him all those 20 years, but Angie's justice and truth to her murder wasn't found for all those years either. So Angie and her family still keep your thoughts with them because they will never get Angie back. Uh, but we are so excited for Chris. We we think that this is incredible. It's well-deserved and it's something that needed to happen. So that's a long enough intro. Are you guys ready for today's case? Okay, so today we are covering a case that one of our listeners emailed me as a request. So shout out to Becky for suggesting this case. She was super sweet with her emails and I love receiving those and really appreciate your guys' support. So if you ever have a recommendation, make sure to email us or DM us. And I had, of course, heard of this case before, but I did not know all the horrifying details. So it's around 6 a.m. on January 14th, 2018, when dispatch in Paris, California, receive a frantic call. It sounds like a young girl on the other end of the phone. And she says, um, I just ran away from home because I live in a family of 15. Okay, can you hear me? And we have abusing parents. Did you hear that? This is 17-year-old Jordan Turpin. She had just snuck out of her home through a window. Her neighbor's security camera from across the street had caught her running from the window out to the road around 5.49 a.m. that morning. She starts running down the street before stopping to make that 911 phone call. The security camera also catches one of Jordan's sisters coming out of the window minutes after her and running down the road the opposite way that Jordan went. After being alone outside for about a half hour, that sister heads back to the home and sneaks back into the window, hoping with all of her heart that Jordan is out there finding help. I know I've heard this story before. I can't remember if I heard it on a podcast or Dateline or yeah. something, but it's very familiar. Yeah, it was definitely in the news and also... ABC 2020 did a special on it just this past oh, November. Oh, okay. So, did you watch yeah, it? I I I think I listened to it on a podcast. Okay. That they yeah. do. 
Yeah. So it is super sad. It was really big in the news and it's pretty crazy. And I, I got a lot of background information. So it's insane. It's insane. Like <laughs> these parents are psychotic. It's horrible. Yes. So Jordan, she goes on through this call to tell the dispatchers how psychotic her parents are, how they pull their hair. Not only do they pull on their children's hair, but they yank their hair out and they hit them as well as throw them across the room. And then Jordan says something that the dispatcher isn't expecting when she goes, oh, I also have two little sisters right now that are chained up, which is Mm -hmm. like catches everyone off guard. And this is why Jordan decided to finally break free and make that phone call for help. This was the most terrifying thing she had ever done in her life. She knew if she was caught by her parents before receiving help that she would be killed by them. But she also felt that if she didn't take that chance, her or her siblings would end up dying in the Turpin home anyway. This escape was necessary. So soon after speaking with the dispatcher, Jordan is transferred to a second one who asks her what the address is, but she doesn't know. She says she will figure it out, but she's never actually been out. In fact, while she's making these calls and walking around outside, she's walking in the middle of the road because Jordan doesn't know what a sidewalk is and what it's used for. But she does have an She doesn't envelope. know her address. Yeah, she doesn't know her address. Literally says on ABC's 2020, I didn't know what a sidewalk was. Like, I didn't realize that that's where you walk. So I'm just in the middle of the road, walking down the street, trying to figure out what her address is. That's crazy. I know. She's 13? She's 17. But she oh, sounds... she's 17. But yeah, she, she sounds little. She sounds super young. Like, honestly, to the dispatcher, she could probably sound as young as like six, six years old, eight years old. Like, she sounds little, but she's 17 years old. She just sounds like that because she's so isolated. She's uneducated because of the abuse, you know, that she suffered basically being kept as a prisoner in her parents' house. So... She had this envelope in her backpack that she had taken outside with her. And I don't know if she put it in there on purpose to have her address there in front of her. But she grabs it out and she tries to read the address to the dispatcher. And she says, my address is 92570574. Did you get it? And the dispatcher is kind of like, no, those are just a bunch of numbers. Like you didn't tell me a street name or anything. And she says she's sorry. She's going to have to look for a street name. She thinks she just read the dispatcher the numbers on her house. But again, the dispatcher is like, no, those are not the numbers on your house. That's maybe a zip code that you read me. The numbers on your house should be just a few numbers long. So obviously this conversation shows you how much Jordan truly like did not know about this outside world. Mm hmm. And thankfully, the dispatcher is able to track Jordan's GPS through the cell phone she was using. And there is an officer 14 minutes away who agrees to take on the call. He was just about to end his shift and he figures this would be an easy final call because runaway calls are always pretty simple. You make contact with the runaway, you have this little conversation with them, and then you take them back to their parents and have a little resolution conversation with everyone. But this call isn't going to go the way he's expecting it to. He was actually about to stumble into one of the most horrifying homes he had ever seen in his career. 
and while Jordan waits for the police officer to arrive, the dispatcher directs her to find a stop sign and stand near that. So she makes her way closer to her home, filled with fear that her parents might peek out a window or come out the front door to discover her looking for help. And she tells the dispatcher, The reason I ran away from home is because the chains were making places and they would wake up at night and they would start crying and they wanted me to call somebody and tell them. And so I wanted to call. I wanted to call y'all so you could help my sisters. So you'll notice that Jordan says the chains are making places. And ABC 2020, who did that documentary on this escape, says that they believe Jordan didn't actually know the word for bruises. So she's trying to explain bruises in like various different ways. And that's what I believe she's doing here, saying that the chains are creating places. Like she doesn't know what to call yeah. that. Which uh, is so sad. And her it parents. Is so sad. Yeah, they probably purposely didn't use the word bruises so that if they ever were in contact with anyone, they couldn't say that. They've you know? just been so incredibly isolated. Yeah. It's insane. Like, I think more than anyone can even really comprehend. Oh, yeah. You have a 17-year-old. She doesn't know her address. She doesn't yeah. know the number she gave was possibly what a, a sidewalk number, is. What a sidewalk is. What yeah. a bruise is called. Yeah, I mean, it's correct. I think Charlie, who's five, knows six what that now. Is. Yeah, six knows exactly, what that is. exactly. So this is just like everyone. Like I, I think the dispatcher is definitely like a little taken back by this whole phone call, and then small conversations continue between them because again, the police officer is fourteen minutes away, so they have some time to kill. And Jordan is asked, "When was the last time you had a bath?" And then without hesitation, she says, almost a year ago. So they were only allowed to bathe once a year. I'm in shock. <laughs> like, no <laughs> words. She's 17 years old. B and she's... Period. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. They probably... Who even... I doubt they're buying them. All their daughter's sanitary pads and like things like that for feminine care I didn't think of that at all I wonder if they were even I mean maybe they didn't have their periods if they weren't fed properly possibly if you're, if you're so skinny you're you know and thin no body fat you're not gonna have a period true like but. just stunted and all of that mm -hmm. so maybe but I bet someone did at some point I didn't even think of that that's yeah. so sad so yeah, they're not allowed to wash down. They were only allowed to wash up to their elbows, like wash their hands and wash up to their elbows. And then once a year, they'd get a full on bath, which wow. is just horrifying. So what about their hair? I know. I think when they were in the home, they just didn't care. They got baths probably and washed up and brushed their hair when their parents took them out into public, which was very rare. And that's about it. So you go into what their dad does, right? For a living? Yes. Or do you? Okay. Well, kind of. Like I say what he does. <laughs> Why? Well, I mean, can I say it? Like yeah. he's educated. He's an engineer, yes. right? Yeah. I mean, he's that, an engineer. that's insane. Not, I literally was thinking that when I was doing research on this case because I was like, 
dude, you're smart. Like you, you're like well educated, and you work in the workforce. So why, like, do you not have the common sense or decency to not treat your kids like crap? I mean, and they are, they are smart enough to know that obviously this is terribly wrong because they're purposely hiding it from everyone. But yeah, I don't get it that he's like yeah. going to work every day as an engineer and then just like completely neglecting their kids. But Goes back to mental illness, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's horrible. And you know, I'll kind of get into their backgrounds too, the parents' backgrounds, and it sheds like some light onto how they could have ended up like this, but it's still horrifying. So Soon, the police officer arrives and starts chatting with Jordan, getting a fill for the situation and fully prepared to take her home to make amends with her parents. But he doesn't know that Jordan is determined that they will not go back into the care of her parents because she knows if that happens, the children will die. And at first, Officer Anthony Colocci, I'm not, I'm never good at names, Colocci, is skeptical about Jordan. She relays the information about being in a family of 15 and about her sisters being chained up, but she goes into a little more detail, explaining that her sisters were chained up because they stole food, but like they stole food because they were hungry. And she's really frantic. She can't quite find the right words. She's apologizing for talking too much when she's like, look, I've never talked to anybody out there, so I don't know how to do this. I've never been alone with a person, so this is very hard for me to talk. So she's never been alone one-on-one -on -one with another adult besides her parents. I mean, how did they get away with this, like not putting them in school? Yeah, you, we'll see why. Because yeah. they do things on purpose to make this happen. So again, Officer Kalochi isn't fully buying the whole story yet. I mean, these officers see it over and over again. Plenty of like routine calls, routine runaway calls. They see it all. This girl has had to have looked different though. She was tiny, her little mousy voice. Yeah, which she did. But he kind of at first, I think just because of course they go into it a little more skeptical when they see like a routine way. And so... You know, at first, he's just kind of like, oh, do your parents know you left? And she's like, no. And then I think her strange behavior leads him to ask this, which is, do you take any medication? But Jordan is confused and she tells him that she doesn't know what medication is. And he's like, OK, do you take pills? And she says, no, I don't think I've ever taken a pill before in my life. Which he, he ends up being like so great and I don't think he was being necessarily like bad here. He just, of course, was like skeptical of the whole thing. Right. They probably get a lot of teenage drama yeah. calls. Yeah. And Jordan actually like really connects with him. She re reunites with him again after the whole thing. So like he was really good to her. But yeah, at first he's just kind of like this can't be real, you know. Her sisters are chained up like I've never heard of this. So she goes on to say, listen, our parents are abusing us. I'm terrified. My sisters are chained up and one of my brothers is also chained up. So three of us are chained up at the moment and we really need help. And then this is when the officer asks that crucial question. Do you have any proof of what you're saying? 
and Jordan does. She doesn't have proof of all the abuse, but just before she ran off, she took photos of her little sisters who were chained to their beds. And then she pulls out this phone, the one that she had used to call, and she shows the police officer this photo. And you can tell he's completely taken back. This entire interaction is shown on his body cam footage, which you can see on that documentary, uh, ABC's 2020. It's season 44, episode 7. But so, yeah, she shows him these pictures on her phone, which I want to point out that phone isn't a phone that's like eight able to make calls and stuff. It did call 911, but I think that's just because disabled phones can still call 911, but this phone like doesn't have service. It wasn't a way for any of the kids to contact anybody else. It's just yeah, must have been used Didn't for like they, a little Yeah, I think I remember saying that one of the sisters used it to listen to music. Yeah. They like listen to music. They listen to Justin Bieber a lot. That's kind of yeah. like using this phone. Their parents had bought it for them when they moved to California, just like for the older kids just to use, not to make calls on, but they were able to kind of watch like videos and see that there is like a life outside of the way they've been living. Yeah. In fact, I, I think they said Justin Bieber like taught them about the world. <laughs> yeah like they used they, like he t- he like saved them is what they were saying which I was like oh Justin coming back we love him <laughs> <laughs> oh. so anyway he looks at all these photos of her sisters in these chains and he goes on to ask if her parents put her sister's in chains like are they are your parents the ones who put your sisters in these chains and he's sick to his stomach when she tells him yes he can see so much sadness and despair in those photos they're two dirty little girls with bruises across their bodies so what's going on here as Kalachi waits for backup he's talking to Jordan asking her what the worst thing her parents have done to her is and she's like well they've choked me and that was really scary So then he asks, well, why didn't you call the police then? And she says, I didn't have a phone then. In fact, you know, this phone was just my brother's and he was going to throw it out. And I needed something I could use to call 911. And I believe they also saw somewhere through like their online stuff, like their videos or whatnot, the things they kind of looked at when their parents weren't around and couldn't see was that you could call 911 from a disabled phone. So they knew that even though this phone didn't work, it should be able to call out to 911. Now, Kalachi gets this overwhelming feeling that this girl who seems much younger than she need, than she is needs to be shown that people on the outside of that home are loving and are caring. So he tries to show her compassion and empathy as they wait for his backup to arrive. That same morning on Sunday, January 14th, 2018, at 7.23 a.m., officers knock on the front door of the Turpin family home. And this is in a home in a pleasant suburban neighborhood. From the outside, the home looks nice and well taken care of. But officers were in for the shock of their life when they walked inside. So they knock, there's no answer, and they keep knocking, like over and over. More than two minutes go by with no answer before Louise Turpin peeks her head out of the door. She won't open it all the way, only enough that she can see out, and the fear on her face is immediately present. 
She knows her dark secrets are about to be exposed. And behind her is her husband, David Turpin. They're in their jammies and Louise steps out in front of the door while David stays in that crack of the door. And he has this blank and confused look blasted across his face. And seriously, when I say her face is riddled with fear, I mean, she looks absolutely terrified. She's breathing super heavy. Her eyes are all wide. It was honestly so funny for me to see her just caught in this moment after 30 years of being like a straight monster of a mom. So as we get through this story, you're going to understand why her shock was so enjoyable to me (laughs) because it's just like, she looks like, um, like, why are you here? And it's just like, wow, could you look any more guilty is what I was thinking. Like you look absolutely like you're doing something wrong in there, which they were. Well, and they were probably super confused on why they would show up. They, I don't, they didn't know that that girl was missing, right? No. And they have a conversation like surrounding that actually. So the police, they say that they got a call for a welfare check and she's like, oh, oh yeah why and like why did you get that call and we were just in bed like what's going on like who called you and the police explained that a young female has just called them who was walking around outside saying that she came from this home and she needed help and then Louise acts all taken back like what she's like she said she came from this house like did she say her name which obviously she's trying to figure out which one of her children went out and was finally brave enough yeah, to stand up against her. She's like, did she say her name? But thankfully, the police don't tell her. They're like, oh, did she say her name? And the other one's like, oh, no, I don't know. We'll have to figure it out later. (laughs) So they don't tell her, which I loved. And yeah, so Luis, she backs up. She's like, okay, like we do have a lot that we're packing because we're actually getting ready to move to Oklahoma. So it's like super messy in here which is a nice excuse, but police and literally anyone is smart enough to realize that your home doesn't get feces and garbage strewn across the floor from packing up to move. So feces. Yeah, it is like, that is so gross. I remember that one podcast we talked about. Oh my gosh. Yes. Alaska. Where there was poop in the house with that guy who killed his mom. Yes. And it's just like, like, and I think that was only a few days that it was in there with him. And we were like, how do you live in that? And these people, how do you? I I don't understand this. That is disgusting. Yeah. And it's like, it's bad. Some of their homes get so bad. And I'm going to go over a few of them, but it's just like, how do you live like this? It, I, I don't know because I don't ever think I could. I mean, no. I wouldn't. Like poo on the floor. Clean it up, please. If you are listening to this and there's poo on your floor, I'm sorry. Just clean it up. Is this animal? I or think human? it is both. Or both. I think Ugh, it's they, both. I hope they don't have animals. They can't they even do. take care of the children. They, oh. I know. They do. I know. Yeah. So anyway, the police are like, okay, we don't care if it's messy in here. And then they just start walking in. And David Turpin, he doesn't even move out of the crack of that door. So the police push it open themselves and just slide right past him. Because it's possible that there is a child in danger within that home, which they were shown proof of by Jordan with the pictures of her sisters in change. 
in chains, the police actually don't have to have a warrant to go inside. So when mm, David that's what is I was trying, just wondering, yeah, he's kind of like trying to block the door. You can tell, and he's like, "Well, do you guys have a warrant?" And they just say, "Nope, we don't need one," and they just go past him. They don't explain to him that, like, no, we know children are in danger in here. We can come in, but that's the law. And it was explained on that documentary. So they, the police just go inside and they walk into this, like, heart-shattering scene. But before we get into all of that, who are these people? And how did this family come to be the spotlight of a shocking and sickening story? I got a lot of background information on this family from the awesome podcast, The Secret Sits, which is hosted by John Dodson. And he did a lot of good research on this family and did a three-part series on them. So check out his podcast if you need more true crime. Now, both David Turpin and Louise Robinette attended the Church of God, which is a Pentecostal church, while they grew up in Princeton, West Virginia. And it's during this time at the church that the two fall in love. They're holding hands secretly at church. They're sneaking around. They're having a fun time with their little secret romance. And this seems normal for a couple of teens, right? Like they're in church together every week. They get nervous to see each other. They're making googly eyes at each other. They're flirting. It's all fun and games. But not really because David is 17 years old, but Louise is only 10 freaking years old yeah (laughs) so not good not normal oh my gosh Luis is a full-on child yes and kind of as we go through Luis's life honestly her childhood's super sad so I I do really feel bad for her and what she went through during that time I don't feel bad for her in what she did to her children but she did have a really trauma filled life and it's like she is 10 years old and she was just like did her parents notice this we'll kind of go through her parents her dad didn't but her mom did but her mom is an absolute piece of trash so she didn't really care and Louise was just groomed her whole life to fall into something like this Where, like, she would think it's normal as a 10-year-old to be having this, you know, I call it a romance or, like, they're dating. It's really not. I mean, it is, like, Like, why would a a 17-year-old want any business with a 10-year-old? No. So, David is obviously a creeper. And these two, they keep this secret relationship going until Louise is 12, And then she tells her grandma, you know what? I love David Turpin and we are destined to have 12 kids together. That's what God wants for us. And at this point, David is a full-on adult at 19 years old and Louise is obviously still a child, not even like a teen child. Like she is a baby. She's 12 years old. So I'm not really sure what her grandma thought about this. I'm assuming she was taken back by it. Their relationship goes on. And like I said, her dad doesn't really know about it. Like from this point to when Louise full on ends up with David and like ends up leaving the home. But yeah. Did she live with her grandma? No, but it's just like disturbing. She just told her grandma that during a visit, I guess. But David, he came from like his own somewhat 
troubled past. His grandpa was a reverend for the church, King Turpin Jr., and he had six kids with his first wife, a young girl named Nellie Turpin, but she died in childbirth with the couple's final children, which were twin babies. And six months later, King is like, you know what, I'm going to marry my kid's nurse. And with that, he's on to his second wife, Bertha Lee Church. But it doesn't seem Bertha necessarily had a choice in this marriage because Reverend King Turpin trades her dad a Studebaker car for this marriage. So like, ew. Yeah. She's not the property of her dad or her new husband, but so that's like gross to me. But he trades her dad. Her dad agrees like, yes, you can marry my daughter. Thanks for the car. Jeez, did it say how old she was? No, but I I think she was pretty young, but not like a child since she was a nurse. You know? Yeah. But Bertha and King, they go on to have 11 children of their own. So King now has 19 kids total. And David is the first child of Bertha and King. No, not David. Sorry. David's dad is the first child of Bertha and King. Anyway... King had started getting into being a reverend before having kids with his first wife, Nellie. And then this was, he had started getting into this after hearing voices, which led him to start speaking in tongues. So he was like, I guess I better become a preacher because it looks like this is my calling. Which like, okay, I guess do what makes you happy. But like the speaking in tongues thing is like weird to me personally. It would like freak me out, I think, if someone started doing that in front of me. But King starts joining this like radical Pentecostal church where he would regularly speak in tongues while preaching, explaining to everyone that it wasn't really him doing the preaching. It was the Holy Ghost taking over his body. And this is why he's speaking in tongues. So King's first child, like I said, with his wife, Bertha, is David's dad, which is James Randolph Turpin, and the family nicknames him Jim. It was in 1985 that Jim marries Betty Jean Rose, which is David's mom, and the couple moved to Princeton, West Virginia. Remember, this is where David and Louise fall in love, or more like this is where David grooms Louise. Six years after being married, the couple has their second son, David Allen Turpin. His dad, Jim, had an extreme religious upbringing, and he passed this along to his children. Not only that, but David also goes to visit with his grandparents and his older brother in the summer. Well, him and his older brother is what I meant to say. Go with his grandparents in the summers. And his grandpa, who is Reverend King Turpin, he would do this good old trick of speaking in tongues all the time around the kids. Which, again, would just, like, be kind of weird, I feel like, for a kid, at least. Um, Yeah. Like, I don't know how. (laughs) You would think he's a weirdo. Yeah. Like, I don't think I'd handle it well as an adult. So I don't know how a kid handles it. Like, oh, like, this is awkward. Like, what is he saying? (laughs) I don't know. Not that it, like, has to be a super weird thing. I've just, I don't know. I've never experienced that. So, of course, David and his family attend church regularly, and it's that Pentecostal church, the Church of God, there in West Virginia where they lived. David's parents, Jim and Betty, end up becoming close friends with another couple, Alan Wayne Robinette and Phyllis Robinette. These were Louise's parents who had three girls, Louise being the oldest. 
And John Thomas was Luis's grandpa. He fought in World War II, and then when he came home, he worked in the coal mines, but he hated that, so he moves on to becoming a lobbyist for the American legend who helped them overturn housing for returned war veterans. Basically, he was making money fighting against housing for veterans, even though he was a veteran. So that's kind of crappy, and he is literally trash. So he. Now I wonder why he did that. Yeah, he's just a bad person, like a super (laughs) bad person. So I just don't think he cared, and he just wanted money. He made a lot of money doing that. And so he was just probably like, eh, whatever, I'll do this. So after he moves on from that, he goes on to open a Shell gas station, and it's the only gas station around the area. So it's this money-making machine, and he becomes super wealthy. John, he worked at this gas station himself, but soon he was getting in trouble for assaulting women that came to pump gas there. He was groping them and leaving his hands on women for far longer than comfortable. Employees of his also accused him of molesting them while he worked. But the community ignored these rumors. They go on to consider him an upstanding citizen. He owns this gas station. He's like a churchgoer. They just think he's still great. Which is why we have to talk about the creepy people who are in our lives. And like... You just have to accept that these people might come from your family or might be your neighbor or might be someone you go to church with. But like not talking about it is how they get away with this stuff for so long. So keep your eye out for those that even you think you trust. (laughs) Because you'll kind of see like John Thomas, all these people think he's a great citizen. He is like horrifying. He's honestly... Not that he's to blame for what happened to the kids, but like he's probably a big factor into what happened. And you'll see what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. So while those rumors are ignored, John was at home molesting his own daughter, Phyllis, which is Louise's mom. And by 17, Phyllis is like, I'm out of here. And that's when she marries Alan Wayne Robinette so that she could save her so that he could save her from the abuse in her home. And after getting married, Phyllis was immediately pregnant with her first daughter, Louise Ann Robinette, who was born on May 24th, 1968. So Phyllis, she struggled in motherhood because of the abuse she suffered. She was distant from her own children and really uninterested in being a mom. So she let Louise and her younger sisters fend for themselves. And Louise felt that she really needed to take on that mothering role. She was the protector of her siblings. And Alan and Phyllis, they didn't have a great relationship, so they're fighting all the time, which the three girls would hear and try to ignore. And the couple also had money problems, struggling just to make ends meet. And with that, Phyllis decides to pass on the generational abuse and that that would be the answer to her money problems. Because in order to get money from her dad, John Taylor, Phyllis would drive Louise to her dad's house and let Louise go inside with her grandpa alone. Phyllis would wait in the car while John Taylor and Louise were inside and he was sexually abusing her. Then he would finish up and he would bring the young girl back out to her mom's car and hand his daughter some cash. So. Oh my gosh. That the is statistics, dis- if you don't know, like for sex trafficking, show that it is likely a child's own family member that will be selling them for sex. 
which is present here. Her mom is exchanging cash with her dad. So to allow him to rape her daughter. That is like disgusting. Why don't, did she work? Did she have a job? Like go get a job. Not that I know of. Yeah. She was just getting money from her wealthy dad. And this is how she was getting it. So both Phyllis and John Taylor being, end up being like literal garbage which is like it's so sad because phyllis was abused when she was young so it's like oh i'm so sad you were abused and then you do this yeah and then it's like i'm so sad for louise during these times and then it's like she ends up being a terrible mother as well it's just like a really sad cycle so whenever phyllis needed money this transaction would occur Phyllis's mom, Mary Louise Taylor, who Louise is named after, comes home one day early and she walks in to see her husband, John Taylor, raping her granddaughter, Louise, who was 14 years old at this time. And John was 58 years old. And Mary was pissed. She yanks her husband off of the couch there in the living room. She chases him out of the home and she files for divorce immediately. So this leads me to believe that Mary, Louise's grandma, Phyllis's mom, hadn't known about Phyllis's abuse at the hands of her father and obviously didn't know about her granddaughter's abuse. And it's like really sad to me that she, when she's like in her 50s, has this realization about her own husband when she sees him doing that to her own grandchild. Ugh, I would want to kill my husband. Oh, I literally like you'd want to kill them. I mean, I think I'd do the same thing. Kick them out and see ya. Yeah. And I, I was really glad that Mary did that because it was like solidifies that she really didn't know or like, um, uh, enable Phyllis's abuse or Louise's abuse. She was just in the dark about it. And then, you know, she's kind of a secondary victim to the whole thing to realize she's been married to this sicko for all these years. Yeah. I wonder how that transaction came up like, Oh, Hey dad, I need some money. Uh, Yeah. Probably like, Hey, I I need money. And he's like, Lois, (laughs) he probably suggested it like, Oh, we'll bring your daughter over here. Yeah. Like I'm sure he didn't say, Hey, I'm going to take your daughter in there and sexually assault her. He was probably like, you know what? Just bring your daughter over, like, and I'll give you some cash. She full well knew, though, what was going on because she was abused by her own dad. Yeah. You know, like, so whether he said it, whether they, like, straight up said it or not, she just dropped her off and waited in the car, probably telling herself, like, that she's not complicit in it, but she is because she knows who her dad is. I mean, I say this every time, but I live in a bubble. <laughs> I know. I cannot even imagine all the stuff that we talk about. Like, this is so disgusting. Like, how does this even happen? I'm in a bubble. I know. I actually thought this. I thought this same thing when I was going through the story. And I was just like, man, if you live a life that's like not filled with trauma like this, be grateful because this would be like horrifying to go through. So sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, so sad. But even though Mary ends up divorcing her husband for this, the whole family agrees that they don't want to ruin their family name so they don't involve the police. 
Oh, which is Mary. sad. I really wish. I know. It's like she made the right decision in divorcing him, but not in like leaving the police out of it. Yeah. So you can see that both Luis and David were brought into these families that are, for David, just kind of a strange family. But for Luis, obviously, pa- her family's passing down a huge cycle of trauma and abuse. Well, yeah, but David? Well, he's honestly just another abuser of Luis in her childhood. Even though they end up as adults being together, it's like he's just another predator that groomed her. And then they end up together. And... You know, her trauma, it's not an excuse for what they go on to do to their own children, but it's very interesting to really, like, take a hard look at trauma backgrounds and, like, think we have to actively break these generational traumas. Traumas? Traumas. Traumas. (laughs) I can't talk. We have to act, like... Well, yeah, it's like the psychology of it, right? Like, I mean, serial murders murderers they don't just go do it yeah there's like psychology behind everything so you know like even the like little traumas big traumas like you have to really try to break that with your own children and if these people aren't actively thinking of it they obviously kind of just fall back into what they know Mm -hmm. and that's sad so David, he graduates from Princeton High School in 1979, and it's around this time that he's 17 years old, and he receives a scholarship to Virginia Tech for engineering, and we all know this is the same time that he starts getting involved with 10-year-old Louise. Again, so gross to me to even say involved or falling in love. I'm just explaining explaining it as David saw it and how it's explained, but like we all know, David is a predator. So does she go to college with him? Well, she's 10, so no. <laughs> okay. He, <laughs> she's still I at didn't home, know her parents thankfully. let her go, and he hit her. I wouldn't be shocked if her mom let her go, but no. So, like, at this time, he goes off to college, and she stays back. And, like, I mean... I was thinking about it too when I was doing it. Like a seven-year age gap gap isn't horrifying when you're an adult, but when the child is literally ten, it is horrifying. Yeah, it is. You know, like I don't want people to think that I'm saying like, oh, seventeen and ten, like seven years. Ew. No, it's gross because he's now becoming an adult and she is still a child. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. You know. I mean, look at my age difference. I know Shannon's nine years older than you. Like, if she was 18, fine. But she's 10, so it's disgusting. She's not even a developed woman. No, like, a 10-year-old is a full child. That's four years older than Charlie, who is, like, seems like a straight-up toddler to me still. (laughs) Like, they're babies. They're babies. Oh, I hate it. So, David, while he was in college, he's majoring in electrical engineering, just like we talked. He's an engineer. But he makes sure to visit Louise back in their hometown and hang out with her as much as he can. But they are keeping this a big secret from his parents and her dad. They couldn't know he was dating an underage girl. And this goes on for years until he graduates with his engineering degree in 1984, and he's offered a job with General Dynamics. 
Luis is a sophomore in high school when David is like, you know what? Come with me. Run away from home with me. I can buy you anything you want. That job I got offered is in Texas. Let's go together. And to Luis, this sounds like a dream. It's an escape from the sexual abuse she was suffering at the hands of her mom and grandpa. Just like Phyllis saw marriage to Luis's dad, Alan, as her escape. Yet here she is cycling around to being complicit in the abuse of her own daughter. And at this point, Phyllis was also taking her two younger daughters to their grandpa's house to be sexually assaulted in exchange for cash. And John Taylor was all about it. Mary had divorced him back when she discovered the abuse. And now, without having to hide it from his wife, he escalated this abuse. So Louise was done. She was ready to run off with David. This sounded like a dream come true. And Louise's sisters actually explained that Louise protected them. Remember, she did feel like she needed to take on that motherly role since Phyllis was so absent. So as their grandpa raped them, Louise would offer to take the place of her younger siblings when she was allowed to do so. And this is just sad because clearly Louise has an extremely troubled childhood. She wasn't taught how to love or be loved. She was had to have been very traumatized from this. And I think it was brave that she was protecting her own siblings and like taking their place. I just, I wonder as she got older with her own children, where that protective instinct went or, you know, the years of abuse and bad parenting just threw her into that cycle with her own. Mm -hmm. Anyway, obviously these situations made it easy for Louise to long for an escape. And when David asks her to go with him, she's like, of course. So one morning before school, she says goodbye to her family and heads to her high school, just like she normally did. And sometime during the day, David pulls up wearing a large cowboy hat to try and conceal his identity. And he walks inside the school, claiming to be Luis's father, Alan, and letting the office know that he's checking his daughter out of school for the day. And it works. Like the school (laughs) is all okay. Yeah, like sounds good. We'll check her out. With that, David and Louise leave Virginia and start heading to Fort Worth, Texas. Now, when Louise doesn't come home that day from school, Phyllis is like, great, she missed the bus and she heads off to pick her up. But she's surprised when the school tells her that her hubby Allen already checked Louise out from school earlier that day. She's not here. So Phyllis makes a call to Allen and she's like, what the heck? Why did you pick up Louise? But of course, he has no idea what she's talking about, and they report Luis as missing to the local police. After a few days, Luis was found in Fort Worth, Texas, and the police there are like, look, you have to at least call your family and let them know what's up. So she does, and Phyllis is not pleased. She's like, I'm calling the cops. We're pressing charges on David. You're underage. He cannot just pick you up from school and move you away. Which is true, like totally unacceptable, but also you're dropping your own daughters off at their grandpa's house to be raped so that you can get paid. So like, I feel like you should be charged. Like like, don't threaten to charge other people. Yeah. 100%. And like, she is underage, at least at this point, she's a sophomore. So she's probably closer to 15 or 16 years old. But something else is that Phyllis actually knew Luis was in a relationship with David. So she's all super pissed, but she knew that David and Luis were dating and she helped Luis keep this secret from Alan, Luis's dad. But remember, Phyllis and Alan Robinette are also friends with Jim and Betty Turpin. 
and they their besties david's parents are like hey will you please not press charges on our son he just graduated college like that's gonna ruin his life please don't do it and surprisingly alan the one who didn't even know about this illegal relationship was the first to agree they didn't want to hurt david who they had literally watched grow up instead alan agrees to let the duo get married especially since they're all prominent members of that Pentecostal church. And Alan really didn't want his daughter living with a boyfriend unmarried. So making sure she didn't live this life of sin was more important to him than the fact that Luis was underage, but okay. He signs the papers agreeing to allow his daughter to marry David Turpin. They actually come back to Virginia to get married on February 11th, 1985. They invite close family members and they have a small ceremony before heading back to Fort Worth, Texas. David is working and Louise is trying to forget her life back home, but she did long to see her little sisters, Elizabeth and Teresa. They were only eight years old and three years old at this time that Louise left home, but she couldn't go back home to that home filled with trauma. Soon, Louise's parents actually get divorced and Alan goes pretty absent as a dad. With that, John Taylor takes a more active role in his granddaughter's lives with Phyllis's permission, which we know is a horrible thing. Yeah. And Teresa said, quote, he would slip money into my hand as he molested me. I can still feel his breath on my neck as he whispered, be quiet, end quote. Ugh. Which is like, oh, I know. And they were young. So like, gross. Yeah. Disgusting. Now, Phyllis, she goes on to have more babies in her life, one with a boyfriend of hers that passes away and a few more with another guy after that, which is just annoying to me because she's clearly not fit to be a mom. She's selling her children to her own dad to be assaulted. But anyway, that I was just like, can you please stop having kids? Like, don't go on to have more Like when you know you suck at it. So... Ultimately, Louise has the two sisters she grew up with, but she does have more siblings now than just those two. And it's July 28, 1988, that Louise and David have their first baby, Jennifer Dawn Turpin. Cute little innocent Jennifer was just born into a life of suffering that wouldn't end for the next 29 years. She is the only other Turpin sibling that participated in ABC's 2020 coverage because most of them have kept pretty quiet and they've wanted to stay out of the spotlight to heal from their trauma privately. But Jennifer was so strong on the show and to think she was trapped in that home for 29 years. So much of her life was taken from her. By the time Jennifer is two years old, David was making a six-figure income so the little family was doing well. Louise and David love to pay for trips and other things for their family just to sort of show off how well they were doing. On February 3rd, 1992, Joshua David Turpin was born. Another J name, yes, but not only were they going to name all their children with a J name, they also wanted them to be J names from the Bible because, you know, they're super religious. <laughs> like, not really because they are terrible, but they like to put on that show at this point they actually file for bankruptcy david is still making six figures but they were spending way too much money 
They wouldn't halt from that front, even though they're filing bankruptcy because they were used to living this lavish lifestyle. They're paying for family trips. So their money problems really don't go away because they don't slow down. And on top of this, the couple had started dabbling into gambling, which is against their religious beliefs, but Louise starts getting into a habit on top of having a shopping addiction. Oh my gosh. So how old was she when she had her first baby? So she's 20 by the time they have their first baby. Okay. And then on November 3rd, 1993, the Turpins have their third baby, Jessica Louise Turpin. And a couple of years later, in December of 1995, their fourth baby, Jonathan Wayne Turpin, is born. It's during a trip back to their hometown in Virginia with their four kids that family members start to notice the Turpins' strange parenting style. The kids were dressed in matching outfits each day of their visit, and they also were forced to walk in a straight line. Not side by side, not running around like kids do, a straight line, oldest to youngest. (laughs) Now, when they end this vacation, Louise and David agree to let her younger sister Elizabeth come home with them and stay in their home. Obviously, Elizabeth probably is being taken care of poorly, just like Louise was. So they're like, sure, like, come with us. And while Elizabeth is living in the Turpin home, she notices that the four kids aren't allowed to go to the bathroom without permission, and they weren't allowed to eat without permission. Not only that, but they weren't allowed to eat as a family. They had to eat dinner one by one when they were called down by their parents. The kids were only allowed in their bedrooms and didn't allow the kids, and their their parents didn't allow the kids to have any contact with their Aunt Elizabeth unless Louise was also present. Which is crazy because Elizabeth literally lives in their home, yet she felt like she barely ever saw her nieces and nephews. And when the Turpin kids got in trouble, Louise would determine punishments and David would act on it. Now, David was also starting to creep Elizabeth out. We know he's a creeper. He started grooming a 10-year-old when he was 17. And he's like, hey, you know, when your sister was like 10 years old, I actually had the hots for her back then, even though she was a child. And like, I just thought she was really hot. And Elizabeth is like, okay, like, I don't care. (laughs) You know, yeah, like, ew. He was just always making these inappropriate comments that rubbed her the wrong way. Then one day, Elizabeth is minding her own business, taking a shower with the door locked, and Louise gets a hanger. She picks the lock and barges in, bringing her husband along. David and Louise then go on to watch her little sister shower. And this wasn't a one-time thing. This starts occurring often. And it's so devastating to me. Yeah. Why? Annoying. I know. I don't know why, because... Elizabeth knew Louise as her protector since she was a young child. And now it's like, here she is cycling back around to that abuse. And Elizabeth is probably super confused. Like, dude, you always like made our grandpa. Like you try to get him to stop. Why are you bringing your husband in here to watch me shower? Oh, probably because he asked her to. Literally. And they're violating her privacy. They're laughing at her when she's embarrassed. And regardless of the fact that Elizabeth says David never physically touched her, like he says, he he didn't physically assault me. Like this is still abuse to force someone to let you watch them while they're naked. Mm -hmm. Not okay. No. 
and Louise ends up becoming jealous. So when she is supposed to pick Elizabeth up from a shift at work, she decides she's not going to, and she ignores all of Elizabeth's calls, which forces Elizabeth to sleep on a bench outside of her work. And then for three days, Elizabeth cannot get a hold of her sister. She makes it to her house and can't get inside. She sleeps outside for three nights until she's like, okay, if you do not let me in, I'm going to call the cops on you guys. So Louise is like, fine, you can come inside. And obviously Elizabeth pretty much just gets her things and then moves away from Texas because this environment has become so hostile and abusive. She's like, I'm out of here. Now, the kids just keep on coming. Remember, the couple has always planned to have 12. So baby number five comes on May 21st, 1997. This baby girl is named Joy Donna Turpin. Then on June 15th, 1998, their sixth child, Julianne Phyllis Turpin, was born. At this point, their money problems continue. Louise is spending money like crazy between gambling and shopping. She's buying kids games, kids clothes, all sorts of things for children that she has this weird addiction to buy and hoard. However, the kids were never allowed to use these things or wear these clothes. So Louise loved buying them, but strangely, not for her kids. She wouldn't let them buying kids touch stuff. Them. Yeah, they were hers, not her kids. It was just something she got her own pleasure out of. And if the kids did try to touch mommy's stuff, then they were severely punished. Soon, the Turpins' home was foreclosed on, and they would file a second time for bankruptcy. But before they file bankruptcy, they decide to max out all their credit cards and buy a bunch of new Christmas presents. And then, of course, when they file, they don't have to pay any of that debt off. <sighs> when the bank takes their home, they pull their oldest daughter, Jennifer, from school. And they would never send her back, nor would they put any of their other chi other children in school. Jennifer had gone to first grade back in February of 1994 at Meadow Creek Elementary School. Her classmates side-eyed her as the skinny and frail girl walked by them. She wore a purple and white shirt with overalls every day. She wore one. She never wore another outfit, regardless of her mom's spending addiction and the closet full of brand new dresses Elizabeth had seen while living there with the Turpins. The kids weren't allowed to use the things their mom was addicted to buying, and the fact that Jennifer had to wear the same outfit to school every single day, along with taking a bath only once a year, led her classmates to describe her as smelling like dirty clothes mixed with urine. In third grade, there was this lice outbreak, and the students blamed her, calling her the cootie girl. And this actually makes me so sad because there was a girl who had gotten lice when we were in sixth grade, and we all had to get checked, and then her parents just shaved her head and cut her hair super short and sent her back to school, which, like, Aww. you don't have to shave their head, you, you know? Don't. So I'm not sure... I don't know how her life was at home, but looking back now, it makes me sad because honestly, everyone at our school was so mean to her. No one wanted like her to touch them. People would say that right in front of her. People would like run from her. And I wasn't even innocent in all of this. And I feel so guilty for her. When I read that, it made me think of her. And it's just like, ugh, kids don't realize that other kids just might not be going home to the best homes. Like, I thought I taught you better than that. 
(laughs) (laughs) I know, but like, I don't think kids literally think about that when they're that age, unless they're being told like specifically like, Hey, other kids might have bad lives. But a lot of times, like you don't think to tell your kid that like, you're not trying to expose them to all like the trauma of the world. But at the same time, it's like, we, we got to make an effort to. You got to just be kind to everybody. Yes. <laughs> I always try to tell Charlie, like if someone's dirty or sad, or even if, like if they're mean, like if someone's mean to you, they probably aren't having a good life at home. But again, like I just, I don't think it's said often enough that like kids even realize it. Or maybe kids would be dicks anyways, because they're like the worst. I feel like kids, especially like sixth grade to eighth grade, that's a horrible time. Mm -hmm. So that just made me think of that girl. I like feel so sad for her. Anyway, end rant. It's just sad to me. But after the third grade is when David and Louise officially pulled Jennifer from school. Jennifer said, quote, I remember I wanted to make friends, but no one really wanted to be friends with me. They called me skinny bones and didn't want to be around me. I probably smelled, but I didn't realize that at the time. But that stench clings to you. It stays with you because we literally lived in houses piled with trash, mold and everything. There's no good way to get rid of a smell like that. End quote. And she says that with a lot of heartbreak in her eyes. I made Jacob watch the documentary with me and he pointed out how embarrassed Jennifer looked saying that everyone thought she was stinky because even though she didn't realize back then, it was like embarrassing and hurtful to her now thinking back on that memory. Like, oh, no one wanted to be my friend because I stunk. So was their mom a hoarder? For sure. Like their house is like those hoarder houses on the TV. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think they cleaned it. Like it, it's just horrible. And there was a Facebook post shared from a previous classmate of Jennifer who writes, quote, Jennifer Turpin was the one girl at Meadow Creek Elementary that nobody wanted to be caught talking to. Every grade level had a designated cootie kid and she held the title for our year. She was a frail girl, had pinned straight hair with bangs, and often wore the same purple outfit. She was often made fun of by the other third graders because her clothes would sometimes look as though they had been dragged through mud, which she would also smell like on most days. I distinctly remember my entire third grade class scoffing at her one day because our teacher had asked her to discard her scrunchie that she used to tie her hair out of her face. It was a discarded tinfoil wrapper from an old Hershey's bar. After that year, Jennifer moved away and she was forgotten about after we moved on to the next cootie kid. He goes on to say some other things before continuing with, I can't help but feel an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. Of course, none of us are responsible for the events that ensued, but you can't help but feel rotten. When the classmate your peers made fun of for smelling like poop, quite literally had to sit in her own waist because she was chained to her bed. It was nothing but so sobering to know that the person who sat across from you at the lunch table table went home to squalor with filth while you went home to a warm meal and bedtime story. The resounding lesson here is a simple one, something that we're taught from the very beginning. Be nice. Teach your children to be nice. If you see someone that's isolated, befriend them. If you see someone that's marginalized, befriend them. If you see someone that's different, befriend them. 
We can never completely understand the circumstances that one is brought up in, but a simple act of kindness and acceptance may be the ray of hope that person needs. Befriend the Jennifer Turpins of the world. Well, and where were She's the like, teachers? You would think the teachers would see this. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. Send somebody it's out like, how? to check it out. How? Yeah. Or but school people, school administration, lunch ladies. They didn't. I, she was even sent to the principal's office at one point. I heard on that podcast, The Secret Sits, because she was continuously scratching her like pelvic region. And the teacher sent her to the office because it was distracting. And then they did nothing to investigate why, what's going on, why is this girl so dirty? Yeah. They just did nothing. Not dirty, filthy, stinky. Like, figure out why. Exactly. And they didn't. And then that was that. They pulled her out of school and, like, no one would have the opportunity, really, again, to see these children on a day-to-day basis. So sad. This episode ended up being way longer than we planned on, so we're going to end right here, and you can catch the rest of it on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I research, write, host, and edit all these episodes. My mom, Alicia Jenkins, is our co-host, and my daughter, Charlie Waters, is our palate cleanser giver. Our music was created by Jaden Schultz, you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Please check us out on all social media platforms and give us a like and a follow and share our posts and make sure to share our podcast with, you know, like 10 of your friends. Let them know that it's your fave and that they should definitely be listening. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters. And today we're going to be talking about dandelions. Did you know most people think dandelions are just a weed? But there are so many uses from for dandelions. We can literally eat them. You can have dandelion salad. You can put the dandelion root in your coffee or your tea. And they'll kind of help you go poop. Bye. Have a great day. Okay, everyone, if you go to www.hopeforchildrenfoundation.org, you're going to find the Hope for Children Foundation, which is supported in California. The board of directors believe California is an important state to our nation, as every state has an important role in America. Hope for Children Foundation board of directors believe finding support for those affected by abuse is necessary in California. Here is the information where victims and or their families of all races, age, economic standing, religion, marital status, national origin, disability, pregnancy, medical conditions, sexual orientation, sex, may obtain information to find assistance and can work at establishing an abuse-free life. So definitely make sure to visit this website, check them out. You can see how you can donate, you can see about their toy drives, their services, and you can get support. If you want to become a sponsor, visit that website. And like I always say, please think about supporting these organizations I tell you about so that we can help fight crime.